Okay. All right. So I'm the adult version follow-up uh, this morning, and uh, I am going to just um, briefly uh, highlight some of the truths that that uh, were shared with us in that presentation, but I'm also going to um, be speaking from 1 Corinthians 15, the text that I read from. If you do have a Bible, you're welcome to uh, open it and follow along. There is a table of contents at the beginning of the Bible that can tell you quickly how to find the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, It's in the New Testament, the last half. And uh, as you're turning there, I just want to say thank you to Debbie for that presentation. Um, If you were listening to the outline, what you were hearing was the gospel story. It is the true story of reality. We are a created being placed upon this planet uh, to give glory to God, but sin created complications. And so we're now in in a state of rebellion against God, and God can't put up with that forever. He, he has to bring justice into the world that he's created, and to do that, he is going to have to punish sin and sinners. But God, in his love and mercy, also devised a way for us that we might have forgiveness and pardon from the sin. And so, he, he sent his only son to bear the wrath, the penalty for, for our sin, and so he died for our sins, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, for this was according to his plan. It was according to the scriptures. God planned for this to take place. And then, so now, as Debbie reminded us, when the resurrection occurred and he returned to heaven, we now live in a place where there's opportunity to find forgiveness and relationship with him. And so, on the bulletin, There is actually, on the insert where we have some sermon notes, on the other side we have an outline basically of what Debbie taught us called Two Ways to Live, the choice that we all face. And if you follow the diagram around, it kind of shows us the gospel storyline, and it's also rehearsed for us in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 2 and 3, where Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then to the five hundred brothers. And then lastly of all, he appeared to Paul, who's telling us this. And... Uh, Paul doesn't want us to miss it, that the timeless grace of God is of first importance. It is of first importance. If you don't believe it, the world around you is not going to make sense. It's kind of like um, buttoning a shirt. Now, I don't have a button-up shirt this morning, but you've probably, those who have put on a button-up shirt... Uh, have noted that if you don't start the buttons on the right track, by the time you get to the end of it, they're out of line. Right? Have you ever had that experience? And it's like, I've got to do this all over again. But this is what the concept here of, of first importance. If you don't get this first buttonhole right, the rest isn't going to make sense. It's of first importance. But even more seriously, if the resurrection, which is tied to this story of first importance is not believed, you're living an unreal world. 
Because Jesus Christ was not just a man who lived and then died. He is a person to whom we must give recognition to. No one has ever died and then come to life again. And Jesus, by doing that, showed that he is not just a man, but he is holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord God Almighty. And so, when Paul saw that Jesus was not just a man, it rocked his world. It fully reoriented everything. Um, as he came to experience Jesus Christ, he, he was actually very intimidated by what he saw and the holiness of God. But on the other side of that, there was a, a generous offer of the gospel to Paul. And so this morning, I want us to think what happens to a person like Paul, maybe like us, who sees Jesus for who he really is. Um, Paul, you got to know a little bit about the guy, but Paul was a follower of God. He was sincere. He was um, what was called a Pharisee. That was a person who was an elite follower of God. He, he went through the Old Testament law and found all the various laws, and then he put them on octane. He like beefed them up. He actually went beyond what the law of God prescribed. And um, he thought he was following God genuinely. Unfortunately for Paul, he was not following the God of Scripture. He was following the God of his own imagination. And when Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus, see, Paul thought that by persecuting these Christians who were following this person named Jesus who died on a Roman cross, that he was helping God out. He, as a leader, began to round up Christians and take them off to prison, and some of them were being killed, and Paul was organizing this. He thought he was helping God out. While he was marching north to a place called Damascus, he had he was struck, not to borrow this line, but he was like thunderstruck, okay, on that popular song. He was completely, his eyes were completely opened. But when he, his eyes were opened to see who Jesus was, he was instantly blinded because he was looking at the pure, holy God himself. Um, when Paul saw the blaze of glory, he became blinded. And in that moment of blindness, he was actually able to see truly who Jesus was. Um, Paul saw who he was. He saw how unholy he was. Um, if you were noticing maybe as I read the scriptures, Paul said he kind of puts himself at the end of the list of people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. And he described himself as being, you know, last of all, I was the one who saw Jesus. And as, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. That word, untimely born, is maybe a soft way of describing what we know as miscarriage. Miscarriage 
is a, a devastating experience for a couple who's hoping and anticipating the birth of a child. And Paul is saying, look, I was in all of this expectation of serving God and being, you know, a follower of God and doing all these things for him, and then my bubble was popped. It was like I had died. And he suddenly realized who God was, and as he was looking at God, he became fully aware of who he was. He was a sinner who couldn't stand in the presence of God. Paul thought he was doing God a favor. Now, what's really fascinating in the experience of Paul, when Paul was on the way to Damascus, the voice that he heard from heaven said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And then the voice called back to him and said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You know, this must have hit Paul like a ton of bricks because, again, he thought he was doing God a favor. And the reality was, he was doing exactly what Jesus taught against. Jesus told his disciples and followers that, blessed are those of you when men shall persecute you for righteousness. Paul was that persecutor. He was, he was the one that was working against Jesus, working against his kingdom. He was persecuting. Paul basically was told, no, Paul, you haven't been helping me. You've been working with Satan. You've been working against me. And this is why Paul all of a sudden realized, hey, I am the least. And the reality is, Unless we accept the true account of Jesus as the Son of God, who is the only way to heaven, what we are doing, we may be sincere, we may actually think that we're helping God, but in the end, what we're doing is we're, we're persecuting the only way. Christ's death was for you, and if we say, I don't need that, what we're doing is saying, I don't need God or the Son of God. Now, that may sound awfully harsher this morning, but I would be, I would be derelict if I didn't tell you that. But there's a beautiful opportunity in that. If you come to accept that, you believe that, on the other side of it, you can receive forgiveness and grace. Paul welcomed grace. So he saw the holiness of God, and then he turned, and he saw the grace of God as well. Paul recognized that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that's really the message of the cross. There really is no other way. So I want to just briefly, I've shown you, you know, what… what coming to see Jesus actually looks like. I want to also show you through Paul and also through what he said here what it means to welcome that grace and to receive it. What is welcoming? What is a welcoming reception of God's grace look like? And I hope I can make this simple. Um, in verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read these verses again, but in these little words, there's little pictures 
of what it looks like to, to welcome and to receive God's grace. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. What does a welcoming response to the gospel look like? It looks an awful lot like being taken from being oppressed to being rescued. Um, I want you to think with me for a minute about World War II. Think about occupied Europe. Think about the coastline that had all of those mines. This is the 75th anniversary of D-Day, right? This year, I mean this year, okay? You've probably seen some documentaries about this or you've seen some things. But you can imagine the coastline of Europe and all of the artillery aiming at at England, and France being completely occupied and under a state of a police state and being oppressed. If you were living there in Europe, um, you'd probably start to feel a low-grade anxiety of like, I need something, I need some freedom. And we might call this anticipation, And really, anticipation is the first starting point in the reception of grace. You have to kind of sense that you're being oppressed. You have to have this internal hunger that tells you, you know, the things that I'm living for aren't really giving me a sense of satisfaction. I once once shared the gospel with a coworker in a factory environment, and as they were listening to me share the gospel, the response that they gave me was this, oh, I had an uncle who once received the gospel, but you know, they actually were in a place that they had come to the end of the rope. What she was telling me was that she was not anticipating a need. And the reality is, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We have to anticipate so that when someone's communicating to us the truth of the gospel, there is a desire to receive it. And that's the second piece of what it looks like. You need anticipation, reception, reception. The word receive there is one that I mentioned earlier in the service about being welcoming and welcoming. You think about occupied Europe again. People are anxious. They're anticipating the potential relief So there's organized resistance that starts to take place in France. La resistance, as it was called. And so there's this spirit of receptivity that's going to happen. And so when D-Day took place, what what did our forces find when they entered into Europe? They found a force ready to help and assist them get to Berlin. In fact... The French uh, resistance were critical to the speed by which our troops went on into Germany. And the reality is, we need to have a welcomeness to receive what we're hearing. It's built by the anticipation. We have to see that we need relief. Perhaps you are oppressed by a bitter spirit, a spirit that just 
works deeply and kind of, you can feel it, it just like churns your insides and you're bitter about everything. There is relief for you and it comes through the forgiveness of the gospel and it can be yours. But you have to open it with a welcomeness. You have to be ready to receive it. There's a third piece of this, this process of welcoming and I call it beachhead. Keeping an idea with the D-Day invasion. The word there um, where he says, this gospel which you have received in which you stand. That's the idea of being established, of like a beachhead at the front that you can fall back on. Um, On D-Day, the the beachhead was established. It's called a beachhead because you land on a beach. And when you land on a beach, you set up all of your forces in a temporary line so that you're not thrown back into the water. It's critical to get that beachhead established so that the reserve troops can come in. Um, In fact, 150,000 troops landed after the initial beachhead was established. Critical for the establishment. And the reality is, is that when the gospel is welcomed, it's a moment of, this is no turning back. I am following Christ and what he has told me. It may come out as a prayer. It may be like, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. Please forgive me. I want to follow you now. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and a beachhead is established and there is no turning back. You are now being established by the gospel. You know, Jesus said it this way, that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is not a prayer that you just throw around lightly. This is a prayer of, I am going to follow Christ now and accept his grace and there's no turning back. And once that beachhead is established, (laughs) you are in a state of rescue. And that's the last piece of welcoming the gospel. You're in a place of rescue. Um, In verse uh, 2, he says, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. You're being saved. D-Day was a one-day experience 18 hours after the forces landed and the first wave of volunteers were mowed down and gradually the, everything was established, 18 hours later, Churchill stood in Parliament and said that the invasion was an astounding success. But was the war over then? It was just beginning. And when the grace of God comes into your life, what What is found in your life is a lot like what the troops found in Europe when they started marching through countries. They started seeing craters of bombshells had had blown apart buildings. There was a lot of devastation caused by by years of occupation. And, and, And if you can go to a spiritual peril, it's how when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, there is there's pits, there's sin that has run you ragged. And now, once you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you're in a place of being saved. You're being restored. Just as it took many decades to restore Europe to its former glory, this is how it is when you begin the Christian life and accept the grace of God. It is timeless. 
and it is available for us. And so that's why Paul says that when you receive the gospel, you are being saved. So when this process of being saved, sin raises its ugly head at you, and you could be tempted to think, well, maybe I'm not saved. You've got to remember, you've got that beachhead. The beachhead is still there. But what do you do? You use the gospel, and it's like if you were marching through Europe, and you see that a German sniper in the bell tower, and he's picking off people, what do you do? You stand back and let him keep picking off people? No, you pick up the artillery, and you aim, and you fire, and you shoot him dead. When sin enters into our life, again, after salvation, you have the beachhead, you point it up, and you shoot it. You say, I don't have to, I don't have to follow that anymore. Christ is my new king. And you shoot that, you shoot that pornography, or you shoot that anger, you shoot that whatever that comes into your life. And you do so because of the grace of God in your life that you don't have to stay there anymore. You are being saved. The reality is we all need the timeless grace of God. And it's of first importance. Life is not going to make sense if we don't line those buttonholes up. We have to start off on the right track. And I think what we really need to be aware of, just as Debbie said, you know, there are two choices. There are two ways to live. You can live as if you are master of your life, and you can go through and you can button all the holes, but at the end it's not going to come out right. Jesus was not just a man. No man ever was resurrected from the dead. That means that he is holy, holy, holy. And this also means that every promise that Jesus ever made is going to come true. In fact, Jesus promised that he's coming again. Jesus is coming again, and that means we will then give account to him, and we will see him as he truly is. Just as Paul saw Jesus for who he is, Paul came to a conclusion, I need to bow the knee. But by that point, if we don't bow the knee then, it will be too late. Jesus will have to give punishment for the sin that we have committed. So, on the one hand, you see the holiness of God, you ought to not get distracted by the need for discipline and punishment, but realize that this offer of grace is an act of mercy. It is an opportunity for you to come to him. Come now. There is timeless grace, yes. But when Christ returns, the time will be done. And so it's an offer of extension of love to you that we do this with you this morning. And we want to encourage you to see Jesus for who he is. And then you too, like Paul, can say, well, it's just by the grace of God, I am who I am. As I started this service, there is a welcomeness to the gospel. All people, no matter what your background, 
there is an opportunity for grace to be received. And we extend that to you this morning. Let's pray.